Okay, I'm delighted to welcome Aki Akim from Migrants at Work uh, onto this Scotland Against Modern Slavery podcast. Aki has been, um, had, had a real interesting conversation after, after an introduction that I had to Aki with the great work that he's doing with regards to labour exploitation, in particular the asylum seeker refugee population in the UK. Um, but he has a story to tell first, I think, which is really important. So Aki... Welcome. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Shan. I'm really, really happy to be here. Um, thank, you for, thank you for giving me this opportunity to try to raise this issue, which have been neglected for, for the past 25 years, really, since 1996. So thank you so much. Well, no problem at all. I'm delighted to have you on. And I think it's a, it's a bit of a journey uh, for, for me to get you on uh, to this podcast, because there's a, there's a relevance to what we're about to talk about and the and the, and the issue of um, migrant labour, I suppose, post-Brexit. Uh, you know, let's get this on the table. But Aki, you have a story. You were a victim. You were a victim of human trafficking or modern slavery, sorry, and uh, your, where you originally come from in the Ivory Coast. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that story, please? Um, yeah, so originally, so I'm from the Ivory Coast. Um, there, there is a little village called Akupe in East uh, oh, sorry, West Africa, um, in a country called Ivory Coast. So I grew up there. Um, my childhood was really about spending time with my family um, in a cocoa plantation, a cocoa plantation, coffee plantation, a pineapple. So on a daily basis, really, my life um, was to go to field with my family. Uh, with my mom, my dad, my brothers, and my sisters. Um, so that was our life, really. You know, you know, while in Europe, some children may be playing football, you know, having fun. We were having fun in a different way, it was in the plantation. So many people would call me a child labor. The international community would call me a child labor under the definition of the ILO convention. But for me, as far as I was concerned, I was not a child labor. I was just working with my family to try to survive because we didn't have any other way, really. You know, that's that's how it is. Some people are lucky to be able to, you know, to have the means to survive. But for many, many of us, you know, who grew up in Africa where, to be honest, the state doesn't really care much about us. You just do whatever you do. And if your family are, um, you know, if you're born in a, in a family of farmers, you just follow life really and try to survive. You know. So, to me, that your story actually sounds very um, similar to many stories that I've heard over the years. But the, the common theme is that you didn't realize that you were, you know, this was this was just life. This wasn't exploitation to you. This is just how you who you were growing up, how your family was. Is that? Well, yeah, exactly. You know, like I said, the people seeing me and hearing hearing me talking about my story and my life, they say, well, that's not right. You shouldn't be working in the plantation. You should be in school. And I would agree. I should be in school. But it's that it's life, you know. <laughs> I was born in a in a country and in a family where we did not have what many, many people have. We do not have these 
you know, opportunity for as a ch- as children to enjoy normal life children are having. But this does not mean that I had a bad life. You know, I was with my family. You know, and many of our children do not have that opportunity. You have children who are being trafficked to do the work I was doing. So I was lucky. In a way, I was lucky. I was doing that with my family. Was taking care of me. You know, for us to be able to survive. So there is. That's why there is a distinction when you talk about child labor. Everybody put. You know, they put us children in the same basket, but you have free group of children um, when we talk about child labor. And I think it's really important to understand, to make that distinction, uh, to be able to attack, to tackle the issue on the ground. And that is really important. Well, um, that's a story and a half. Okay, so tell me, <laughs> that, you, know, you, know, you've, you know, I hear a lot when the more people I talk to, and, you know, sometimes you think nothing will shock you, but you know, that's, that's, that's been your life. That was you growing up. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, what we're here to talk about. So I'm, you know, making some assumptions here, which are always very dangerous. You know, you've ended up in the UK, so there's been a process from UK, getting from Ivory Coast to the UK, and then about the work that you're doing. So what happened then? Why did you end up here? Um, again, so when you look at, again, the international law and when they talk about child trafficking or human trafficking, uh, I can say that I went through a similar process, but the process I went through, I cannot fall into uh, the definition of a trafficking. So what happened is that my family, my mom and my dad sent me to our relatives in, uh, in France, okay? So me and my sister, without any adult, I was 10 at the time, my sister was 12. They just took us to the airport. We took the plane, so from Ivory Coast to France. And then we met other relative in France who then took us from France, from Paris, where, where we landed to another, another city in, in France. So that's the journey we have made to Europe. Okay, so you have many who were not lucky, who have been sent by the family overseas to to work or, you know, to be able to have this opportunity to have a better life in Europe, where they end up being mistreated, being used um, as, you know, as worker in the house. So they're being really abused. The family in the first place sent them to to give them this opportunity to work to improve their life, but in in the end, they end up being abused by these over uh, family members. So, which was not my case. So, even though I was in a way uh, uh, sent from one country to another, but I was not abused at the end. But I went through this process. Like I said, many other people do not have this chance to arrive in a country. They don't know. They don't know anyone, uh, or when they know their relatives, they're being exploited. But I was not exploited, so I went through the process, but the end result was different. And I'll take this, you know, a stage further. Like so that you know, there's a, you've touched on, you know, people that are coming from other countries post Brexit. Let's you know, I'm not going to hold back that. You know, anyone who's not a UK national who isn't on the highly skilled, you know, um, visa program, then 
if they're coming to the UK, they're coming to the UK and they will, they're at huge risk of being exploited. So we're seeing, um, you know, with, it's probably something that um, we didn't look at deeply enough before when, and when we had people who were willing to do the jobs that, you know, that the, the, the UK nationals dominantly weren't taking up, we had a European mi migrant workforce or a European workforce that was taking up those jobs. Now they've gone home or they've settled and moved on. And we have these gaps in the labour market, these massive gaps of around 1.24 million vacancies in the UK economy just now. And, and it made me think, and you've just been really clear on this, is that there's a whole population of people that have come to the UK, they've come for a better life, they've escaped in persecution, whatever situation it may be. And as they go through the process with the UK Home Office to, to, to get status and eligibility to work and live in the UK, they are not allowed to work up to a point. And with the money that they earn, um, it, it would be a struggle for them to live on. So they're immediately an at-risk population. And if you couple that with the fact that we have these massive gaps in the labour market and um, that these people potentially illegally could fill or there's unscrupulous criminality that could try and come behind it, this is the concern. And this is what we're, we're seeing a little bit more in, in, in business. And, and there's also a desperation in, in, in the business community as well that are looking to plug these gaps. So will they turn a blind eye? Will they just let that man who says he can bring 10 people in to finish that job uh, and not ask any questions. Will they let it happen? And we are seeing evidence of that happening, particularly over the last year. Um, so I, I suppose for me, it's there's, there's a concern and it's opened my eyes about the exploitation of those people waiting. But I think, first of all, let's, let's just clarify some points and get some, some um, definitions out of the way for anyone listening. So, I can, you know, knowing the work that you do, and I know that, we're going to talk yeah. about that in a minute, but, you know, if, so people are talking about refugees, asylum seekers, and there's a lot in the press, you know, let's, you can't hide from that in, in the UK that maybe um, paints a very bleak picture of, of what these people are here to do. Or, or, and but sometimes I think we forget in the UK, we've got a country that's made of migration, mm -hmm. you know, we, waves and waves, historic migration. I'm up here in Scotland, I'm in a city called Glasgow, and it was built on migration, this is, you know, industry, Irish migration, European migration, and Asian migration, it's all been part of the makeup, the genetics of the city, otherwise it wouldn't exist. So sorry, I'm getting carried away, Aki, so <laughs> carried away. It's not a history lesson, sorry, but I was really keen to get, can we, can you talk to me, the definitions, you know, refugees, asylum seekers, what does this all mean then to somebody listening? Yeah, and I think you're right. And I think it's really, really important to understand this definition and who is a migrant, who is a refugee, and who is an asylum seeker, and who is an undocumented migrant worker, who is a regular migrant worker, who is disqualified. It, and the reason why it's really important because if you get the term wrong, you may, some people may deny the right they're entitled to. So, and that is really important. So a migrant would be, for example, somebody like me who came from Ivory Coast to France and then from France to the UK. An asylum seeker would be somebody who is seeking asylum for whatever reason, who's, who has left in country, was forced to live in, in his country and seeking uh, asylum in another country. So I'm not going to go into the definition of uh, the, the, um, 
the refugee convention because it is too technical and illegal or is, is somebody who leave his country to another one to seek asylum because of persecution so and if that person hasn't made an application that person is an asylum seeker until that person get granted status then that person will remain asylum seeker once that person has been granted status then that person will become a refugee so a refugees in some of their right to work the refugee or asylum seeker and migrant the right are completely different so if you mix an asylum seeker and a refugee and migrant you might end up in a workplace you might end up denying the right to work of a refugee thinking that is an asylum seeker when he's not you know and there are some asylum seekers who have the legal right to work because if you look at a group of asylum seekers there are three group of asylum seekers in terms of the right to work so if you do not understand this group of asylum seekers you may allow some asylum seekers who do not have the right to work you may allow them to work when in fact they don't have the right to work and those who have the right to work you may deny them this opportunity because you think they're asylum seekers and that <laughs> I don't think that, that, that there's some clarity there, and I have some, I have some real life experience because you know we know well in, in, in my in my day job and my business job I work for Brightwork Staffline, it's a, the biggest recruitment agency in Scotland and the UK, and oh. uh, we have a very stringent way of checking people's rights to work. But I remember meeting a, a victim of sexual exploitation who had who had been put on the shortage occupation list. Mm -hmm. able to work but only for certain categories of work and this was quite you know so uh, high level engineering you know ballet dancer you know medical professional and he didn't have any qualifications and so we couldn't put him uh, we couldn't get get him to work um but what he said to me is well don't worry Shan, the agency at the other end of the roads they've got me out working as a cleaner and that's all i wanted mm -hmm. but i had to explain to him he's at risk because He's not supposed to be doing that type of work, and if that happens, if, you know, he could have um, quite a significant impact on his uh, ability to remain in the UK if, if if he gets caught out. But so there's businesses, recruitment agencies, or companies that are just uh, are had um, worked around it. But anyway, so so from the purposes of your definition of a refugee in asylum, mm -hmm. if I'm a refugee now and I'm able to work, mm -hmm. I'm still at risk. Of exploitation would you, would you agree with that Aki? Uh, yeah anyone and i think one of the mistakes a lot of people are making is that they think that migrant asylum seeking refugees are exposed to um to leverage rotation because of the immigration status and from my perspective the reason why people are exposed to leverage rotation is not because of our immigration status it's simply because of the mechanism that remove our ability to um, to cope and resist to the change, there's so many changes immigration law have brought in into this country. So if you're a refugee, of course you will also be exposed as a British national from BME background will be exposed. The problem is not the immigration status that is the problem. The problem is the law is too complex for employer to understand. If you are a refugee who 
um, who's been granted refugee status in the UK. You have made your application as an asylum seeker, you've been granted refugee status in the UK. You should not be, you shouldn't have any problem um, to work because you have subject, you are subject to, you are not subject to any restriction. You are entitled to work. What is happening is that because of the lack of understanding of the term refugee asylum seekers and, and migrant, and employer lack of understanding uh, of immigration law, they believe that refugees do not have the right to work. So because of that, they would deny the right to work of these individuals who have a refugee status. So because that individual um, needs to feed his family, needs to provide for his family, then that person who had the legal right to work will be pushed into uh, labor exploitation. So what pushed that person into labor exploitation is discrimination. So that person is discriminated because of either the immigration status or the nationality. Because if you have the legal right to work as a refugee and the employer do not want to employ you, it's not because of your immigration status, it's because of your race. The employer believes that you do not have the right to work because you are somebody who looks like me or somebody who looks like you. But employer, even though technically it could fall into the Equality Act 2010, so therefore discrimination, but from what I see on the ground is that employers are now racist. Is that the, well, many, uh, let's say 90% of employers, 99% of employers are now racist, but you have a tiny percent of employers who are using immigration law as an opportunity, really, opportunity to openly um, uh, express their racial, um, the, the, the racist views um, using immigration law to, to, to support that. So when you're being victim of discrimination and you do not have this opportunity to work, then you fall into the informal uh, market where you have to get cash in hand job to be able to feed your family. That's how the conflict between migration law and labor law create discrimination, which then lead to labor exploitation and then to force labor exploitation because you have this kind of a pattern, discrimination, a victim of labor exploitation, and then victim of forced labor exploitation. And these, it, this, the process is different whether you are an asylum seeker or refugee or a migrant. And if you're a migrant, this again would depend on your immigration rule. So you can be an EU citizen, for example, who have a settled status. You could be an EU citizen who have pre-settled status. So it really depends on your immigration route. Complicated. It's very <laughs> complicated. But as you say, at the base of it all is that, you know, at, um, the, the complications in the legal system and the definitions, migrant, asylum seeker, refugee, can inadvertently, an employer could just be discriminating against somebody who has the right to work because they just, they can't face it. They don't know enough about it. They don't have an understanding about this, uh, the processes in the system. So that kind of tells me, so, you know, what is, so, you know, your organization, migrants at work, what is it that migrants at work, what is it, what is it you do then? What's your, what's your um, just 
So I set up migraine at work, it was in 2018. So the reason why the background for this is when I arrived in the UK in 2000, I arrived in the UK in 2006. In 2009, I was working for a security company. So I'm an EU citizen as well. But of course, when you see me, I don't look like a EU citizen because for most people, EU citizens are white. So this has I, been... I know how that feels like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. For many people... Seeing me as an EU citizen, you know, I say I'm EU citizen, say, okay, you know, they don't want, they don't say it, but you can see in the eye clearly that no, it, it can't be because people see my skin before they see my passport. It's simple as that. So in 2009, I was working for a security company and I got a job with them in 2006 so i was already working three years prior to the day of the incident so when they recruited me i used my uh, my french national id card which at the time was a valid document to work so in 2009 there was a two-p transfer so a new company took over so they were doing the right to work check because immigration at 2006 came into force in uh, in February, on the 28th of February, I believe, I believe it was on 28th of February, 2000, 2008. So in 2009, when they started doing the right to work check, they check in their file and they saw that I did not have my right to work permit. Then they asked me, can I provide my right to work permit? I said, well, I don't have it. They said, well, you need one. And I said, no, I don't need one because I'm a EU citizen. They said, well, you need one. So we had an argument going back and forth. Then I couldn't win because my employer is a big company. I'm just a little man and black. Um, at the time, I did not have a lot of knowledge. So I reached out to the home office and explained the situation to the home office. The home office said, yeah, there is no problem. You have the right to work. Then I went back to my employer. I said, well, the home office said I have the right to work. They didn't provide me any document, but they said I have the right to work. My employer said, no, you don't have the right to work. We can, uh, if you don't provide your work permit, we would have to dismiss you. I said, okay. Then I went to the French embassy. I said, well, this is what is happening. They said, no, you have the right to work. They can't do that. I said, okay. I went back to my employer. They said, no, we cannot employ you. But they said, you need a French passport. I said, well, I don't have a French passport and I don't need one. They said, well, you have a choice. Either you get your French passport or we sack you. Then I have to apply for a French passport, which I did not need. I have to spend money, which I did not have to spend. And at the time I was working, I was going to university. My wife was going to university and I had a, we had a, a new baby. And so I needed money, you know? So I applied for the French passport. My French passports took about two weeks to come. And we still have, you know, the, uh, the email going back and forth. Um, then finally, I received my, my passport. And during that time, I was working with, a, with a, a friend in the construction industry. Because of the situation that was going, I didn't know whether I would lose my job or not. So I was doing side job with in this construction in industry. And when I got there, they did not want to employ me as well because of the issue with my right to work. So I was working cash in hand. So you can see already how the conflict create uh, uh, this, uh, the, the, the vulnerability and push me into kind of a, this exploitation. So once I got my passport, then 
they were at ease and then I started working for them. But when I was having this problem, I contacted my trade union and I explained the problem to me. And what they were saying to me is that, well, the right to work is an immigration issue. I said, no, it's an employment issue. They said, well, we can't help you. You need to go see an immigration advisor. I didn't know who to go, or where to go and who to see. So I look on the internet and friend told me, you can go to see citizens bureau. And I went to them, they said, well, the right to work, it's not an immigration issue, it's an employment issue. I said, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and then after that, then we, the company I was working for, there was a, a redundancy situation. I wasn't made redundant because I wouldn't keep quiet uh -huh. because the situation for me, there was something that was not right. So I was made redundant. And then a few years later, I joined a union as a regional organizer. And as I was going around organizing people, I realized that it was a problem that was not the only one I was having the same problem. Okay. All people look like me, including British National, were having the same problem. Then I started to organize with my union. They did not want to help. They did not want to take on the issue that affected migrant workers. Then after five years of working for them, I resigned because I couldn't take it anymore. And then I set up migrant work in 2018. So what we do at migrant work is to educate our community in a community environment. So to identify the early sign of discrimination and modern slavery. So then once we have provided this training to our community and they go to the workplace, they identify this sign, then they come back to us if they have any issue and we carry us some, we conduct some, some research and we provide case uh, support, representation of work and advice. And then we get in touch with the employer. If the employer listen, then that's fine. If the employer does not listen, that's why we take it to court. And then we get support from different organizations to help us deal with the court case. But our work really is mainly on the prevent prevention because I believe that the, 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 the impact of labor migration on labor rights, it's, it's an easy issue to resolve. This really has created what, what I call homegrown slavery, which is different, I see differently from modern slavery. So homegrown slavery is the impact of labor migration law on labor right. We create this intersection between migration and labor law where we migrants fall into because employers have difficulty to understand the, this, this conflict. So that's what we do at Migrant Award. Wow, again, this, the background to the story shows the passion about what you do, Aki, and why you do it. And I think it's, um, for me, somebody who's worked in recruitment for a long, long time. And, yeah. and also with regards to the work that, you know, that we do here with, with the anti-human trafficking and modern slavery in Scotland, this is a, a population or populations, this is a, a, an area of people that um, probably need a lot more support um, and and I've been a little bit left left out, and I think your story highlights how difficult it can be uh, to get that I suppose that recognition and support and help. And, and and you've done a lot to get there, and I think this is probably just the start of our journey to involving mm -hmm. in some of the work that we're doing in Scotland with regards to Scotland against modern slavery. Um, I suppose for me. I'd just like to thank you for you know telling you telling everybody who's listening. It's a very deep, quite a moving story, quite emotional, uh, but it sh highlights the passion of individuals like yourself and organisations like Migrants at Work about what you're doing to help people, uh, people who need help the most. 
and probably mm-hmm. not probably are, are being overlooked not just by not just by society but business I suppose Aki I'm going to kind of ask you a loaded question but it sounds to me that businesses can have a role to play in helping these people and it's quite easy it's about recognizing and understanding the differences having the knowing a little bit about the law and legislation and taking away some of those barriers to allow those people to work and and yeah. basically live yeah i think it's it's exactly that and i think unlike modern slavery which has different root causes homegrown slavery it's modern slavery dom- um, human trafficking or domestic trafficking or however you want to call it, but it is abuses resulting from conflict between different migration law and, and labor law in practice so the conflict is not in the law the conflict is in the practice of the law and the simple solution for that is education and if employers educate the workforce the management but also migrant and we migrant on the ground, we know our immigration right because we have to know that. But many don't know employment law. So we're trying to bridge this gap. And employers' role, they can help because this has an impact on, on them. I'll give you an example. Uh, we supported um, um, a, refu- uh, a refugee who had leave to, re- to remain in a country to so have a leave to, to have a legal right to work. Her visa expired and she renewed it before it expired. So the employer said, well, it was a recruitment agency she was working for. The recruitment agency said, I'm sorry, you can't work. So they continued to employ her for about a month and then they told her you can no longer work because we noticed that your, your visa has expired. And she was explaining to them that she renewed before expired. So which means she has a legal right to continue to work, but employer refused to allow her to work. So she worked for the employer for about a month. The employer dismissed her and refused to pay her her final salary and withheld her pay. That is exploitation. So she got in touch with us and we provided support to her. And in the end, what happened is that so she was working for a care home through the recruitment agency. In the end, we reached out to the care home and the care home said, well, she's a really good worker and we are struggling to find the staff and we cannot let her go for we believe that she does not have the right to work. So we've our, one of our partner, um, uh, immigration advisor partner, we got involved in these. So the immigration, uh, immigration advisor partner looked into the immigration status of this individual and they confirmed that a person had a legal right to work. And then we got involved with the, 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 uh, the care home and the care home worked with us. In the end, that person was removed from the, uh, the recruitment agency and worked directly for the care home. Mm-hmm. So this shows that when employers get involved and work with us, they can only prevent uh, uh, illegal working offenses, illegal employing offenses. So therefore they're not gonna be fine because the individual had a legal right to work. And as a bonus, they get somebody who is qualified to work in a sector where employer can find the, the right skill. And for that individual, we, pre- we prevented that individual from falling into 
leverage, leverage rotation and forced leverage rotation because that person now had a full-time job. So you can see here that a person working for a recruitment agency went for a precarious situation to a full-time job. Now the employer is happy and everybody's happy. So this is really about education and about employer getting involved. If they resolve this labor exploitation shortage because they learn about immigration law, then at the same time, they can prevent labor exploitation. So really it's a win-win for everyone, but employer needs to get involved, need to train this stuff. And that is really important. It's just about education, nothing else. Great. Aki, that's a, a real insight and you're right. It's employer education and this will help, help fill the gaps that, that they may have in their, um, in their workforce, but actually help the people that are needing that support. That's a really, really good example of it. That you spoke about as well with the recruitment agency and the care home. Aki Akim has been a delight speaking to yourself. I'm sure we're going to hear more thank from you over the coming months. So thank you for taking part in today's podcast. Aki Akim, Migrants at Work. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much.